Thanks, Artem, for reading that. And let me add my welcome to Rosie's. It's great to see you here. Now, if you look down at the passage in 1 Peter and look at the first verse of the passage we had read, verse 22, in this verse and really at the heart of the passage is a very um, challenging command. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Sincere love and deep love, that's what's being commanded, what's being exhorted. Um, The picture of deep love is a picture of a marathon runner, mile 24, straining to kind of get to the end, not giving up, keeping on, keeping on. And actually sincere love is actually probably better translated pure love. Um, there. So the idea is a love that doesn't have mixed motives. So this is the command, love one another purely and love one another deeply or with an endurance that doesn't fade. Now on one level, I think we all find that very attractive. I mean, no one here is looking at a command like that and thinking that the world wouldn't be a better place if we didn't put that into practice. So we, we long for this in our lives. I think at our better moments, we would long to be these type of people. But if you pause and reflect for a moment, whilst attractive, it is also enormously challenging. It's one thing to give a high ideal, but how do you actually do that? I mean, pure motives, enduring love that doesn't give up, that's in short supply. Um, But wonderfully, Peter doesn't leave us to kind of play the guessing game about how we do it, because sandwiched either side of that command are the key, the kind of gospel truths that will unlock it and enable it to be a reality in our lives. And so we're going to look at how it can be possible and how the gospel will release it and enable us to do that. Now, we're coming to the end of um, 1 Peter chapter 1. We've been spending a number of weeks looking through this for those of you who are joining us. And this end section links together some of the big themes of chapter 1. You'll remember if you've been with us that Peter is writing, as he says in chapter 1 verse 1, to God's elect exiles, that is people who, their experience of living in the world, because they are not from this world, they are born again, as we'll see. Um, They're part of the world to come, the world that Christ is bringing in. Their experiences of being exiles, uh, being strangers, being foreigners, their values don't fit in with the prevailing culture around them. Their ambitions and their ideals don't fit in with the Greek and Roman world around them. Nonetheless, Uh, They are elect, that is, they are chosen. And so it's interesting in our passage today as well that we have a quote from Isaiah 40, which was written to a people who were in exile in Babylon. So Peter is linking together this exile theme. And also, just as we have in verse 3 of chapter 1, that we are born again into a living hope, so we also have this idea of being born again in our passage. Look down at verse 23. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. So these big themes of being an exile, but nonetheless having a hope in the now, a living hope, a vibrant hope, that sustains you no matter what you face, top and tail this chapter of 1 Peter. But I also want us to zoom in and just see how the verses that we're looking at work as well before we get into them, because they are slightly obscured by the translation, that is by the English words that the translators have chosen. So this... um, Sincere love would be better translated pure love, and that links to, do you see in verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have pure love for each other. In other words, he's saying the gospel has made you pure, and therefore you can love one another purely. And similarly, he says, love one another deeply from the heart. Again, the word would be better translated, love one another in an enduring way or in a never-fading, never-stopping way. And see how that links with verse 23, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. 
In other words, what God has done in your lives through Jesus Christ enables you to love people in this way. So the kind of the command at the center is sandwiched either side with these two gospel realities. And this is where we're going to dive into our passage and try and understand what's going on. So firstly, let's look at pure love by those who have been purified. Pure love by those who have been purified. And we're going to look at verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere or pure love for each other. What Peter is saying here is he's saying the only way that a human being can have pure love is if they have been purified by the truth of the gospel. It's sometimes said, isn't it, um, that there's no such things as pure deeds, only pure motivations. And I often think when I hear a phrase like that, how wonderfully naive do you have any idea what the human heart's like? Because if I look at my heart, I never have pure motivations. I don't think it's just me. I'm kind of getting some nods. So it must be you as well. Pure motivations, really? But that is what he is calling us to do here. He's calling for a purification of our motives, a love that is other person-centered. How is that possible? Well, notice what the passage doesn't say. It does not say what we often would think it would say, which is if you love one another with pure motivations then you will receive the purifying love of God in your life. In other words, it's not saying, if you do this, then God will love you. This is where Christianity differs from every other major world religion and from the fundamental inclination of the human heart. Every other world religion or the inclination of the human heart says this, if you do this, if you live such a way, if you love one another in a pure way or something like that, then you will receive eternal life blessing, nirvana, enlightenment, a higher spiritual state. If this, then this. Christianity turns it all on its head. It says, because you have been loved this way by God, then that changes you to enable you to love other people. It's completely the opposite way around. If you're here as a guest, please understand this. This is where Christianity is fundamentally different, which is why, of course, it can't be true that all religions are the same on the same path to God, because Christianity is taking the opposite path. It's literally going the other way. It says that God has done something profound for you. He has purified you. Now that enables you, and that alone enables you to love one another purely. Just to be clear on the phrasing of it, verse 22, when it says, now that you have purified yourselves, it's not talking about a kind of self-atonement, a self-purification. It can't be because earlier on in chapter 1, verse 2, we are told that people are sanctified by the work of the Spirit, that is, washed clean to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. So this is something that God does by the power of the Spirit and by the work of Christ. He purifies us. We don't purify ourselves. But it is true that it's not automatic. Just because God has done something in space, time, and history doesn't mean that benefits us unless, verse 22, we obey the truth. That is, we obey the truth of the gospel. We trust and obey Jesus Christ. That is how we appropriate, we benefit from what Jesus has done. Secondly, when it talks about now that you have, or sorry, by obeying the truth, it's not talking about every time I obey a command in the New Testament, I'm somehow cleansing myself. Again, it's not that. That would be works. It's saying that big picture obedience, the obedience of the call of the gospel, the obedience of the call of Jesus Christ to repent, that means turn around, and to believe him and trust his promises, that is what cleanses you as you trust in his finished work on the cross. Now, so much by kind of ways of grappling with the text, but let's try to think why this is so important. To be washed clean is one of the great desires of every human being. I put it that strongly. 
think of one of the great scenes of Shakespeare um, in Macbeth. Lady Macbeth, the night after she has with her husband plotted and executed the king, King Duncan, she is racked by guilt and she walks the castle sleepwalking, scrubbing at her hands as though she's trying to scrub the blood out of her hands. And she famously says, out, out, damn spot, out, damn spot. And she keeps repeating this over to herself. And she's a haunting presence, not just in that scene, but in literature in general, because it plays to the way that we have a deep sense that we are not clean, Uh, not physically clean, of course, we can have a shower or a bath for that, but far more profoundly morally clean, spiritually clean, We, like Lady Macbeth, are aware there are spots and there are stains on our conscience. We have done things that we are ashamed of, and we try to deal with that in all kinds of ways. I mean, one of the big impetuses for counseling and therapy today is to psychologize it, to say, ultimately, it can be psychologized away, but it's amazing how stubborn it is, like those stains. We sometimes try to pretend and put a mask on that we are clean, and so, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine, too. And so, we play the game, but we know that we're not. We sometimes try to deflect or defer, so when people actually point out to us something we've done, we kind of come up with, how dare you speak to me like that, as if the main issue was how they were speaking to us and not the sin we've committed, right? We have all these well-honed psychological mechanisms, all designed to stop us dealing with the fundamental reality we deep down know, that in our souls, that is in our very psyche, that's the word in the New Testament, in our souls, we are not the people we long to be. And therefore, before a holy God, we are not the people he longs that we should be. And we can try and minimize it or explain it away, or we can try to atone for it ourselves, but the stains remain. We're like Lady Macbeth, out, out, scrubbing away. And so much of our endeavor in life is an attempt to persuade ourselves that we can make ourselves clean, and we know it doesn't work. And yet, verse 22, there is an alternative. The alternative is quite striking. To trust in Jesus' work to trust in what he has done for you. When he dies on the cross, his blood is shed to wash you and me clean if we trust in him. He lived a spotless life. He never did anything wrong. He's the only person who had pure motives, who ever loved people purely and in an enduring way. Even on the cross, persecuted innocently, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as he's cleansing them, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's even praying for people on the cross. And as his blood is shed, he makes it possible for all people to be washed clean, for the spots and the stains to be gone. If you will trust in him to be washed clean, you say, is that possible? Yes, it's possible. Because if God says you are clean, and he promises that his son has done it, who are you to contradict God? And so he persuades your conscience you're washed clean. The famous hymn, which we're going to sing a little bit later, Amazing Grace, was written by John Newton. And John Newton, as many of you will know, was a slave trader. He'd lived a horrible life, including viciously taking people away from their homeland, carting them off in the most abhorrent conditions. Now, he makes, you know, kind of so much of our actions look pale by comparison, and yet he could write the words, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He's talking about being washed clean. How could he write that? Because he knew Jesus Christ had done something so profound and had cleansed him that he's saying, it's not about me. I know I've done horrendous things. It's about him and what he's done. I've obeyed the truth of the gospel. I am washed clean. And he devoted his life, once he grasped that, to loving people with a pure love. 
That's what's being talked about here, to love people with a pure love. Think of how much difference this makes to the type of love you have. You know, one of the things is that when we so often love people, we're often doing it out of self-centered motives. I think you can see this, that when someone offends you, what's the first thing that kind of comes to your mind or often comes out of your lips? How can you do that after all the things I've done for you? (laughs) What does that show you? It shows that all the things you've been doing for them haven't really been for them. They've been for you because you're leveraging it. You've kept a ledger of all of your good deeds, which isn't really therefore good deeds. It's more of a way of creating a transaction, is it? I've done this for you, so you now owe me. And in fact, that's what human religion is. Human religion is creating a ledger saying, God, you owe me because look at all my righteous deeds that I've done. Can I ask, is that what you think the Ten Commandments are? That's not what the Ten Commandments are. The Ten Commandments aren't a ledger of if I do these things, God will love me. They're saying God has loved me, so this is the way to live. And pure love cleanses you of your impure motives of saying, I need to do this to get favor with another person or with God. You say, God's loved me, he's washed me clean, and therefore I can now go out and love other people for their good because I don't need anything from them because I have everything from God. Do you just sometimes, as a Christian, start to realize how transactional you are in your motives and you long to be different? The gospel is the way that you can be different purifying you, God has made it possible for you to love purely. Secondly, um, in the verses, the other side of verse 22, verse 23, undying love by those who will never die. Undying love for those who will never die. Look at how the motive comes in verse 23, for or because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Now, there's a number of things going on here, and then this wonderful quote from Isaiah 40, from that very famous chapter in Isaiah 40. But first of all, notice how what God is saying to us here is that if you trust in Jesus Christ, your nature has changed. Now, when I first read this, whenever I see the kind of idea of enduring love or love beyond the grave or life beyond the grave, I always am expecting a reference to the resurrection. I imagine you are too. But there's no reference to the resurrection here. I'm I'm not saying it's not in view. But notice that the way that you've been born again here, the focus is on the Word of God, not necessarily on the Son of God and His resurrection from the dead, though I'm sure that's true. But here Peter says, you have been born again not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable one. What is the imperishable seed? The living and enduring Word of God. In other words, the picture is this, is that the eternal Word of God has been planted in our hearts, our um, impermanent, mortal hearts, and because that seed is permanent and because that seed is immortal, as it flourishes in our lives, we become imperishable and immortal too. That's the picture. It's kind of like a, a glorious fairy tale, isn't it? You know, swallow this seed and you will live forever. Well, that is where the ideas come from because that's what's going on here. Believe this word, take it into your hearts, let it plant in your hearts and you will live forever. Now, you know those words from Isaiah 40 are um, repeated in Psalm 103 and I say them at funerals that I conduct in the Church of England and there's something about them which just reminds us of human nature. As for man, his days like grass, he flourishes like the flowers of the field, the wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. And that is very true, isn't it? It's a very good assessment of human nature. We flourish for a time. We achieve things. Maybe you're flourishing right now. Maybe you're achieving things right now. Maybe you're in the full summer, full bloom of your life. 
wonderful, I rejoice with you, isn't that brilliant? But you know, you might try and push it to the edge of your thoughts, but you know it won't be like this forever. You know that you will grow old. And you know that so much of your endeavor and your efforts in your life is to put a marker down to try to fight against the brutal truth that you are very impermanent in a very, very big universe. That when considering the space and time of history, you are here today and you're gone tomorrow. And yet we try so hard, don't we, just down the road in the city, big buildings and people trying to achieve something and listen to the language, make a dent and put a mark down and put a flag in the ground, all permanent language, trying to escape the reality that we're not permanent and we're not going to last very long and we will die and you know that. But he says, if you want to live forever, if you want to really make a mark, then the living and enduring word of God, if you believe in that, take it into your heart, it will keep you for eternal life. You may say, well, that's nice, but... Isn't it just wishful thinking? Isn't it a bit hard to believe? Wonderfully, the evidence for believing that claim is actually in the passage. That quote is from Isaiah 40. That was written or written to a people in exile in 590 BC. They're in exile in Babylon. Tiny nation of Israel have been cast off to Babylon. And there they are dwarfed by the world's superpower at the time. All of the buildings would have looked so permanent. All of the false gods of Babylon would look so permanent. All of the armies of Babylon would have looked like they would have endured for a thousand years. And Isaiah writes in that situation, God's word for them saying, trust God, the exile will end, Babylon will not endure, they will be conquered within a few generations, and you will return home. Believe this word. How ridiculous that word looked at the time. But if you want to, you can go down to the museum of, or to the British Museum, and you can see the... um, Assyrian and Persian reliefs there, and you'll see that King Cyrus in 539 BC did exactly that. He conquered Babylon. Babylon fell. The great empire fell. And you'll see that under the Persian empire, God's people did return home. And so that great empire fell, but God's word endured and was trustworthy. And then think of the context in which it's written to Peter's Um, here is about AD 60, AD 62. The Roman Empire is in its pomp and its glory. It's going to endure for another couple of hundred years. And he writes to them saying, if you hold fast to God's word, you will endure forever. But if you don't hold fast to God's word, it will fall. And the Roman Empire did fall eventually, didn't it? And God's word still endured. And now we stand here today, and of course the naysayers and the doomsday um, prophets of secularism, pun intended, irony intended, you know, of course say that secularism will continue and that Christianity is as has passed and modern man has no place for religion and it will fall. But I tell you this with absolute certainty, kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. The word of the Lord will endure. It always has done. It always will. Is it the word you trust or do you trust the prophets of the age? Oh, they look in their pomp so certain, don't they? They always have. But what would you say to those in Babylon in exile? Wouldn't you say now, with hindsight, trust God, don't trust them? What would you say to Peter's hearers at the time? Wouldn't you say, trust God, don't fear the Roman Empire? What do you think people would want to say to you in a hundred years' time? Trust God's enduring word. It will endure. You will endure if you trust in it. Secularism will come and go. And what a difference this makes, because if we see that God's love endures and God's word endures in our hearts and makes us eternal people, it gives us a steadfastness to commit and to endure. And we desperately need this in our culture, don't we? Because when it comes to love, we are incredibly fickle nowadays. Enduring love is a rare commodity in our society. 
Think in our culture, people say their wedding vows till death do us part, but 42% end in divorce. Parents vow to their newborn children when they hold them in their arms, they will always be there, but 23% of families in the UK are single parent families. Friends say to one another, friends for life. And then they write a post you get offended with on Facebook and you unfriend them and they don't even know. Love is fickle in our culture. And of course, I know there's a a myriad of stories and qualifications that need to go with those statistics, but you also know that there's something in it, right? Enduring love that commits, that sticks, that holds fast, that is a rare commodity. But if you know God has loved you eternally, if you know his word endures, if you know that Jesus Christ's love will never fade on you, and if you trust in him, you will endure, that transforms you and makes you a person of commitment in love, to say, I will stick with people, even when it gets difficult, even when they offend me, I'll deal with them like a human being. I'll talk to them about it graciously, loving, I'll look for restoration, because a friendship gets stronger through those. And it's no friendship at all if it can't endure a few ups and downs. So, pure love that purifies us, and an enduring Love as well as a response to God's enduring love for us. Lastly, so love one another. Third point, so love one another. We've seen throughout chapter 1 of 1 Peter that it's not easy to live in a world where the way Christ calls us to live is, cont- is countercultural. Peter has described all kinds of trials that we're going to face. To nail down some of the ones that I think are particularly poignant for us today, it's going to be sexual ethics and it's going to be the beginning of life ethics. Christianity's stance on marriage and Christianity's stance on abortion in the Western world are utterly abhorrent to the majority view. And yet, that was exactly the same, exactly the same in the Greco-Roman world. And it was because Christians refused to give in on those points that they actually, the, the gospel grew. And yet everyone is telling you, get with the program, stop being so outdated, give in on these two areas. You can't believe that, you're not one of those Christians who believes that, and all the pressure is on. And I know it's easy for me as a church minister because I don't have to go to work every day and have people saying, are you going to one of those churches that believe that? And you feel the heat, the fiery trials of one Peter, it comes on you. How are you going to endure? Well, Peter is saying you can only endure if you love one another in this way, if you love one another with a pure love and with an enduring love. In other words, you need each other. In um, the film Gladiator, one of those great films with lots of subtle romance going on in it, um, in the film Gladiator, you'll know the bit where Um, Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North and the Phoenix Legions, just to give his full title, is standing there in the the amphitheater. I haven't watched it many times at all. And he's standing there in the amphitheater with his fellow slaves, and they're about to face um, the other gladiators coming out with the odds considerably stacked against them. They come out in kind of Bodicea-esque chariots with knives kind of flying out the side of their chariots, and they're firing arrows. And it's not a fair fight at all. And Maximus, in his distinctive, brilliantly contextualized Australian accent, says to them all, whatever comes through those gates, we will have a lot better chance of surviving if we stand together. And then he famously shouts, hold the line, hold the line, scum together, form up, form up, and they form up shields, they lock shields together. And because they work together, they do overcome what goes through those gates. They are able to survive. It is actually a wonderful picture of what Peter is saying here. The only way we can face and endure what is going to come through the secular door our way over the next few decades is if we come together. And think of Peter who says these words because this must have been very poignant for him. 
because when he was a young man, in his full pomp and glory as a disciple for Jesus, what did he say? Even if all else fail you, even if I'm left alone, I will not desert you. Do you see the pride? He thought he could do it alone. And you know the story? Just took a slave girl, didn't it? By the fireside, just to say to him, aren't you one of his? Aren't you one of Jesus'? No, 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 I'm not one of his. And he denied him three times. He knew the bitter truth that you cannot do it alone. He knew it, he'd lived it, he experienced it. He's writing from experience. When he writes fiery trials, don't you think he has that imagery in his head of that day, that night by the fireside when he bottled it, when he gave it all up? Because he tried to do it alone. And he's saying to you and to me, you can't do it alone. None of us can stand alone. We need one another. So love one another if you want to stand purely and deeply. Let me give two brief applications as I close. This type of love to help us to stand in whatever trials we all face will require an un-British vulnerability. I know that not everybody here is British. We normally have some 20 or so different nationalities. So let me say this to the Brits here as a challenge. And if you're not British here, you might sit and nod along and reflect on your own culture. And you can tell me where you're at with your culture afterwards. Un-British vulnerability. You know, this requires a lot more than just being nice, which, by the way, we Brits are very good at, particularly if it's polite. We're very good at being nice. But this is talking about loving one another purely and deeply from the heart. Sometimes the British definition of hospitality is making someone feel at home when you really wish they were. That is not what's being talked about here. That is not what's being talked about here. Friends, the British in general, we are awful at hospitality, cards on table. And the reason we're bad at hospitality is we are bad at opening up our homes because we are very bad at opening up our hearts. The two go hand in hand. We worry too much about what people will think about our homes because we worry too much about what people will think about our hearts. Have you not done the connection that the reason you might be overly concerned about the mess or putting on a good show for people is because you're really trying to present too well the mess of your heart and the show that's going on in your heart too much? But just open your home to people and say, it's a bit of a mess. My life's a bit of a mess. My children have just left this bomb site. You know, ask your people who come in to help you with it. You know, be vulnerable, be open, and say, here we are. But you know, I want to invite you around, and there's no time like the presence to come. And it doesn't have to be a stellar Gordon Ramsay meal. That's lovely if you want to do that occasionally, if you enjoy cooking. But you know, a pizza from co-op and an honest conversation is far, far better and far more edifying than a five-star meal and no honesty and no vulnerability of the heart. Open up our homes and open up our hearts. They say that you know, a British man's home is his castle. Well, a number of us need to let down the drawbridge. Invite people in. And for people who are internationals here, they will think that you don't really care about them until you have them around your home. That is often the truth. So open up your homes and open up your hearts. Prepare to be vulnerable. That's why our second value here at Inspire is engaging the heart. We want you to be open and honest about what God's doing in your heart. You've not got it all together. Don't pretend you have, but you're committed to working it through. And the best way to do that is with one another, an un-British vulnerability. Secondly, this type of love requires countercultural commitment to community. That's a mouthful. Countercultural commitment to community. 
You know, my experience in the UK, and particularly amongst the current generation, is that people are always talking about how they are for community. They want community. They want rich relationships. In one sense, of course people are going to say that. I mean, who is going to say, are you for community? No, 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 I'm proud enough and arrogant enough to think I can do it alone. Have a good day. I mean, it doesn't work like that, right? Everyone says they're for community. But our actions speak otherwise. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his brilliant book, Life Together, and please do read this if you want to grow in understanding and live in community, said this, the person who loves the dream of community will often destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. Hear that? The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. Can I ask you, do you love the ideal of community or do you love people? Many of us talk richly about, we love the ideal of community, but we treat the people around us like a restaurant. If I don't like the service, I'm out the door because you offended me. Friends, that is not community. That is a thin imitation that the Western society has sold you. It is not community. Community commits. It's not incidental those two words are close together, right? You commit. And so when a friend offends you, You go and talk to your friend. You say, I was offended. I was upset by that. You do that with love and grace. And they give them an opportunity for them to apologize. And you know what? As you do that, you grow together. The friendship grows stronger. Show me any friendship that matters anything at all. And it will have been through a lot together. People will have committed to one another. Sometimes they will have hurt one another. But they get good at saying sorry and working it through together. And do you think the church family or any other family will be any different? We have to commit to one another, say we love each other, not for what I get from you, not because you're perfect, not because you're just like me, but because God has first loved me and I'm committed to you. Friends, this is the community you're in. It is one of my sadnesses that in the six or seven years that Mark and I have been running Inspire, I imagine that when we've made mistakes, people have not given us the fair crack of coming and telling us. Often when people leave church, They don't even send an email saying why they left. Would you leave a family by email? (laughs) But an email would be an improvement on what we normally have. Would you leave a family with not even a word? If we offend you and get it wrong, please come and tell us. Test us on this. We will say sorry if if it's coming from the right place, if we really have done something wrong. And then we will grow in our relationship with you. If other people have offended you, then work it out. Commit to one another. But if it's just easy, come, easy, go, it will never be worth anything. We must commit. Commit community. It will be countercultural for our generation. But you know what? In the long run, it will be profoundly attractive. And it's the only hope we have for standing when the trials come. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, how we need the encouragement and the challenge of these words. Lord God, we praise you that you don't exhort us to do something but leave us resourceless to do it. But you call us to love one another purely with a sincere, pure love and deeply with an enduring love because you have purified us and you have given us the enduring word that will take us from now into eternity. And so, Lord God, we want to love one another in this way. Please transform us by the power of your Spirit so we might be a community like this, helping us to stand as elect exiles in this generation. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.